Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod, and this week it's episode number 46. Um, again, this week I'm really happy to say that we are sponsored by the DCA Print Studio. Um, and as I mentioned last week, the guys down there really just want to encourage creatives, designers, I mean anyone really who's got an interest that wants to create physical things using printing techniques um, to go down and explore the print studio down in the DCA. I think they, they just really want to have conversations with people and really encourage them to come in and start creating work. Um, and some of the easiest ways to do that is to go through the courses that they organise. Um, so there's, there's loads of different courses and a complete range of uh, materials and approaches. Um, so if you do want to find out a bit more about that, you can go to cccdundee.com forward slash DCA um, and all the information about the courses, about the print studio, it's all on there. And off the back of that, off the back of the courses, you get a discounted um, year's registration. So to tell you a little bit more about the registration, here's um, the head of the print studio, Anis Fitzhugh. Registration runs for a calendar year from when you join. The full price is £48, but for students and anyone on benefits, it's half price, £24. And you also get it half price if, if you complete a course with us, so you get a half price registration the first time. And then once, once you've registered, done an induction and learn to process you can come in and just access the piece of equipment that you've learned how to use and the great thing is we don't just abandon you after a course we, we make sure that there's someone around all the time to troubleshoot to see that that everything's going okay for you and if you've forgotten something we can remind you so it's the registration is it's not a membership as such it's not a, an exclusive thing anybody can join as long as they do, do the first course and get the skills necessary to, to do one process. And then you can build up on all the other processes and equipment after that. So if you are interested and you do want to find out a bit more about that, um, you can head to cccdundee.com forward slash DCA. Um, and Anna said, I mean, it's £48 for a whole year's registration. I mean, it's less than a pound a week to get access to some amazing kit. Um, and what they're really trying to do is make it as cheap as possible for um, creative just to get in there and, and start producing. Um, and if you do want to get involved, you can check out the website. But I've, I mean, I suppose just go and poke your head in and go and say hello. That's what they want to do. They want to engage more people, chat them about their ideas and what they want to go and create. Um, so uh, let's get on with this week's episode. So it's Gemma Connell, who's a choreographer, dancer and creative producer. Um, she runs The Artifact. And I mean, this was one of the the easiest conversations to edit, I mean, which was great for me, but it was just really flowing, um, really natural. And I think we sort of dip in and out some really deep stuff, some really light and humorous stuff. Um, and if we go into quite a lot of depth about hip hop culture, which I find fascinating, um, and then touch on the publications that that Jen has created and the sort of the rest of the series that she's she's planning to to put out, and then potentially a book. And yeah, I mean, we, we sort of get a little bit political at some points, which I mean, I've tried to avoid on the podcast, but yeah, I mean, at the moment you can't really avoid it too much, can you? But yeah, I mean, it's a real pleasure to to chat to Gemma. And yeah, one of the easiest interviews I think I've, I've done on the podcast. Um, it just flowed really well. And to be honest, I could probably have gone on for two hours and it would still be fascinating. Let's get into the episode. Uh, it's number 46 and this is with Gemma Connell. Well, I suppose my journey began back home in Manchester. I'm from South Manchester. And um, I was kind of the quintessential little girl who liked to make up dance routines in her bedroom, that kind of thing. Did it with my next door neighbour. I think the first dance routine was like to S Club 7, bring it all back, that kind of, yeah, that's that's the, the area we're talking about to kind of start off with. Um, and we'd actually, we'd go to the local youth club on a Friday night and we were showing off, basically. We were showing off to the younger kids going, yeah, we'll teach you to dance and all this kind of thing. And um, we essentially got spotted kind of doing it at the youth club and um, they were running a project there called Macclesfield Bandwagon Project, um, which was for the Duke of Edinburgh 
Award. Now, at the time, I was like 10 years old, so I was technically kind of too young to do the Duke of Edinburgh Award, but they invited us to be a part of it anyway. And um, we created a street dance routine um, to kind of go on a carnival float through the Macclesfield Carnival. Um, and it was kind of one of those things where, like, the other girls that I was with was like, oh, yeah, okay, that was fun. And now I'll move on with my life. And I was like, no, I, I don't want to stop doing this, you know. Um, but I come from quite a big family, quite a working class family um, on the edge of Manchester. So it was like um, I wanted to carry on dancing, but I knew there was no way my family was going to be able to kind of pay for dance lessons or anything like that. So um, just kind of carried on teaching myself in my bedroom and watching music videos and trying to copy whatever was on there. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd dream about being on the stage and all this kind of thing, but never never necessarily thought it was going to happen. Uh, then it kind of came to the time of, like, choosing university. Um, and my, my undergrad is actually in English literature. Um, I chose my university, Warwick, on the basis of how many dance societies they had, which may or may not have been a good idea, but um, it turned out well in the end. Um, so I kind of, I did it that way, I did it like the extracurricular route, because when I went to uni, you couldn't, you couldn't do a d dance degree in hip hop, you can now, but when I first went, you kind of, you couldn't do that. Um, so, did so at it, that point, it was it was hip hop that you were interested in. It was yeah, it was definitely well, it was it was kind of street dance that kind of began with, and and there were a lot of uh, kind of overlaps between different forms. You know, some would probably describe what I did when I was a teenager as street jazz rather than hip hop kind of thing, um, but there were some very blurred lines and definitions aren't necessarily set in stone. Um, I didn't know that at the time. I was just, you know, a kid enjoying dancing and kind of um, expressing myself through kind of uh, through movement and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I went, w went to uni and kind of became like the president of the Street Dance Society and all this kind of thing and just sort of did it that way and came out the other end thinking, I, I don't really want to do anything else. I don't, I don't want to, you know, just go and work in an office, go and, you know, find some corporate job, you know, I was quite, I was quite academically minded, you know, quite, quite clever, but still was like, no, I want to, I want to do something artistic. Um, and cause I'd been organizing like shows while I was at uni. Um, and I'd also been kind of working at the 24 seven theater festival back in Manchester during the holidays. Um, because uh, my, my claim to fame is that my second cousin writes for Emmerdale. Um, so he got me in with a theatre festival because I needed some work experience and I ended up kind of working there properly. Um, and, you know, I come out the other end of uni and I'm looking for jobs going, I want to work in the arts, I want to work in the arts. And saw this job advertised that was trainee producer at the Manchester International Festival. Um, and realised that's what I was, that's what it was called, a producer, there's, you know, this person who organises all of these shows kind of thing. Um, so went for it, thinking it was really a long shot and got the job. Um, and that was a kind of a, a year contract. And it was the most amazing thing to kind of just learn all, all of the ropes of that kind of industry with the best, you know, with um, what is you know, currently like the second biggest festival in the whole world. Um, and it was, it was in my hometown. So that was, that was kind of cool. Um, and then kind of from there, I, I kind of did a few contracts with different festivals and um, worked with the Olympics, but was more on this sort of stage management, producing, organisational side of things. And I'd try and do kind of my own artistic work on the side, and it was, it was a conscious decision because the producing and the organisational stuff paid the bills, whereas the artistic stuff didn't. Um, but, you know, I, I never got to a point where I could really push my artistic work very far because, you know, you're focusing all your time on this full-time kind of job. Um, and then I kind of ended up down in Bournemouth on the southwest coast of England um, as youth and education coordinator at Pavilion Dance Southwest, try and say that really fast. Um, and uh, uh, that was uh, uh, kind of the first role that started to bring in 
my artistic side as well and I would teach young people how to dance as well as organise shows and things that they would be involved in. So it kind of relit the fire again of, I, you know, I, I want to perform, I want to teach, I want to make stuff. Um, came up to Scotland in a, in a similar role. It didn't necessarily work out for me and then decided, right, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go freelance for a bit. And the reason I'm going to go freelance is because I think I'm at a stage where I need to make a decision now about what it is I want to focus on. Um, and Was that an easy decision to come to? Well, I took six months to make it, so no. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, I think I knew, I always knew what I wanted to do. I always wanted to focus on the artistic, but I think there is something having come from, from it sounds like a cliche, but having come from a working class background and and, you know, to a certain extent watching my family struggle with money I never wanted to be that but I never wanted to be in that position um and I'd I'd got to a really good place where I could demand quite and you know not a high but for the arts quite a nice kind of salary working on the organizational side of things but I was making other people's work happen not making my work happen um it's funny because from having done a lot of these chats about people with those pivotal moments um and it is often about the fulfillment yeah that's absolutely. why the change is happening because you're like okay i'm making money i can live i can eat i've got everything i need apart from that creative fulfillment exactly exactly um and i think i think i was lucky i think the decision was made easier because my partner at the time what had you know some stable a stable income and we were okay so he, it was with his encouragement that he kind of said you know just take six months figure out what you want to do so I did a bit of kind of tour managing for a other dance artists bit of producing I did some teaching um uh, of hip-hop dance and kind of creative movement um and I took on a couple of my own commissions and at the end of the six months it just it was just really clear to me I, w I want to focus on making my own work and I'm okay with still being a producer but as long as it's a producer of my own work rather than kind of helping other people's happen so it was a, in a in a sense a slightly selfish decision to make but I kind of thought oh you know I've 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 done a lot of the other stuff now I need to I need to kind of do something for myself um so um from kind of that um the artifact dance company which I know now run was set up um with an idea to kind of work with dance in response and in conversation with other art forms because I've never really kind of been just about like a straight dance routine I was always more interested in how dance related to music and sp spoken word in particular and things like that um so it's we took a you know myself and a, a small board took quite a considerable considerable amount of time to sort of set that up and make sure we were getting it right and the business plan was exactly what we wanted it to be um and you know now it's what just over two and a half years later and we're we're doing really well we're getting funding in it's not you know massive amounts but um we're kind of getting recognized for working with marginalized groups of people and using dance and spoken word to um kind of have their voices heard um so it's kind of that that creativity is a is a vehicle for that it's a way of of allowing people's voices to be heard we're telling stories that maybe haven't been told before or that have been told wrongly or incorrectly before um and we're connecting with a lot of people specifically in Dundee um, and it was Dundee that when kind of the artifact first came about, Dundee welcomed us with open arms. Um, and it was just, it was a city that just kind of went, oh, you've got an idea. Come on, let's make it happen then. And I was always a little bit bowled over by that. of going, what, what, what? There's no, there's no brick walls being put up. There's no, you know, red tape. And it was, it was none of that. It was, let's just, let's make it happen. So because of kind of the, the support that we got from Dundee, the artifact now pretty much mainly operates out of Dundee and works with the communities here. So when you say we in, mm -hmm. the, in the context of artifact, yeah. um, who is we? So there's myself, um, there's a small 
board of directors who are voluntary, um, uh, some of which are um, kind of also connected to Dundee, but some of which are in England. So they kind of keep us connected to the rest of the UK as well. Um, and then we have kind of a, a pool of, of freelancers and collaborators that we work with. So nobody is necessarily employed on a, a permanent basis. It's all ad hoc. It's all for, even, even myself, I'm a, I'm a freelancer for them. But that seems to kind of work for where we are at the moment. So uh, let's talk about the, one of the, the projects um, that you've been working on in Dundee, mm-hmm. um, Creative Toolbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you just want to just give a little bit of intro, a little bit of insight into what, what Creative Toolbox actually is. Absolutely. I'm really, really loving this project at the moment. We're sort of halfway through it. Um, so Creative Toolbox is kind of a collaboration between The Artifact and Louise Cartwright, who is um, also a dancer who works with words like we do. Um, but it's um, it's for the young people who are currently using Dundee Women's Aid Service. So they're either experiencing domestic abuse or they are recovering from that experience. Um, they're aged between about... Um, uh, kind of eight and twelve at the moment, um, and they're on various points within their journey through this sort of horrific experience that they're going through. And what Louise and I are trying to do is use words and movement and dance to allow them to express themselves in ways they may not be able to in other areas of their lives. Um, so they 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 may be told to sit down and shut up um, at home and at school and not get that opportunity to sort of let off some steam, let some energy out and express how they feel um, about what's happening to them or what's happening in the rest of the world. And these workshops allow them to do that. So we we play kind of word games um, and we get them to create little um, movement patterns that fit with the words um so you're kind of making words come alive through movement which for us very much links back to you know hip-hop which is our our main kind of dance style um in the way that hip-hop is choreographed it's either to drum beats or to the rhythm of an mc or a spoken word artist so you're kind of working with how people speak and no matter what accent you've got everybody's got a different kind of rhythm so mm-hmm. um kind of using that but also thinking about what those words mean to people and how some words can mean very different things based on what you are going through at the time um so in a way turning those words into movement becomes kind of a bit of an art therapy um and as i say just allows them to kind of express themselves and also gives them a chance for you know that workshop each week to escape what is kind of going on so how did that that project come about and was it because I was thinking you used the word therapy Mm -hmm. and I wasn't sure whether you you would frame it like that or not I mean was that the intention when you first sort of came up with the project um yeah it kind of is I mean we we did a bit of a pilot project earlier on in the year um and tested a few things out um with with the kids it was actually a different group of kids um and we found out what worked and what didn't work what got the kind of best responses from the young people were the tasks that were a bit more therapeutic we're asking them to kind of think deeply about their thoughts and feelings um and then we saw there was an opportunity to apply for funding with the cashback for creativity fund which is administered by youth link scotland and it's a fund that basically takes the money that has that the the police have come into through crime and puts that money back into communities. Um, so it may be money that has been taken off a criminal that they have made through criminal activities, and they then put that back into, into communities. So it's a really, really kind of great fund um, to go for. But it was specifically about using the arts with young people. Um, so we put together this, this project, having done the pilot and found out what what was kind of working so it was then more geared towards kind of an art therapy kind of thing and myself and Louise are very interested in that because of some of the experiences we've had over the years um Louise work has done a lot of work with uh, addiction centers and things like that so using um dance and, and and movement to help people deal with addiction or with their experiences of that um, and I've worked previously before with the women at Dundee Women's Aid as well, 
um, using kind of dance and spoken word as an art therapy. So it was just about kind of bringing the two together and seeing if it worked. Um, and we're just over kind of halfway through that project now and we're noticing some, some real differences in the young people in the way that they are wanting to express themselves and also in what they're comfortable saying and what they're comfortable doing. Um, so it's all, it's baby steps mm. towards a, you know, a more confident young person. Um, but if there's anything, I think our, our, our feelings is if there's anything we can do to help um, them deal with whatever's going on in their lives, then we've done our job. Yeah, kind of I mean, it's, it's an amazing project and it's an amazing sort of application of creativity. And I think that the more that we can do and the more that we can bring creativity bring that into and sort of start to, to facilitate activities for people to get them more involved and to make them yeah. feel more part of the city, I think the better. Um, so I'm wondering from, from your perspective and having mm. done a project that does that, mm -hmm. how do other creatives who are here in the city at the moment mm -hmm. do that? And how do, you, how do you get started? What are your first steps for, for making something like that happen? I think it's, because uh, part of it is thinking about not just kind of going, oh, well, I'm a dancer, so I dance. Um, and I can teach dance. Um, but thinking about all elements of your practice and how they come together and, and how they help you. You find a lot of artists don't, they, they don't just do what they do in creativity because they love it. They do it because it, it is either cathartic for them, it's, it's helped them in, in some way. And maybe a, an art teacher or, or somebody like that has um, helped them deal with something previously in their life and then they wanted to kind of pursue that. So kind of, I'd say, take a moment to think about what your art practice does for you and therefore what it can do for other people. Um, I mean, a lot of what I've spent sort of the past year, 18 months doing is testing these workshops out on a variety of different groups of people and seeing what works in what context. So I have done um, a bit of work with young people with additional support needs. Um, and the, the tasks that we use need adapting for that group. But then you also find that they respond differently to things as well. Um, and just, just through that experience of testing and going, oh, do you, you know, do you guys like this? Are you getting something out of it? You can start to really build a picture of exactly what your art practice can do kind of for the rest of the world. Um, so it is, it's about trial and error. It's about, it's about testing. Um, but also just finding, finding something that you're passionate about. The, the cause at Dundee Women's Aid is something that is very close to my heart. So it was it was sort of, there was no question when an opportunity came up to kind of go for it. Um, so, and I think that's best if, if you're looking to really invest in something like that, make sure you find a cause that you're really, really passionate about and it'll, it'll inevitably go far, I mm. think. And I suppose there's also a, a realm of, of collaboration that you can do as well. So it's bringing potentially two creatives practices together. Mm -hmm. So I know that's something you've done quite a lot as well. Yeah, yeah really into that kind of thing I don't think I don't think we operate well in silos in any part of kind of the creative industries um and I kind of I don't like to I get I get lonely quite easily you know I, I like to work with with kind of other people and I think the nature of what we do at the artifact when you're talking about how we you know we create dance in conversation with other art forms it demands collaboration with somebody else and I'm not the kind of person who's going to try and sort of um, uh, try and learn a little bit of another art form to bring it in. It's like go big or go home. If you want it done properly, you need to bring in someone who, uh, as a collaborator, who is really experienced in that art form and who can kind of show you what that art form can do. And then together you can bring your both, both your practices together and it will just be you know, it will create an incredible project. Don't sort of half do it because then it'll never work. Because, um, well, I mean, you just received um, some funding to do another collaboration as part of the AMPS um, funding project. I, I suppose I don't think I really talked about AMPS on the podcast, um, but it's part of Creative Dundee um, and a way for them to allow the design community to support the activities that they do and the, the great work that they do. And then basically a portion of 
the amp the, the funding from the amps members each year goes into a pot and then you can pitch with an idea to get that funding and you and mal from biome collective uh won that funding this year um, for another project involving um women's aid yeah so we're hoping to kind of bring games together with kind of dance and spoken word and it kind of came from so mal and i have worked together a little bit before but through another company um and we were interested in trying something again that was much more specific to what both of us do. Um, and when the AMPS fund came up, it kind of, it was a little bit like, oh, well, maybe, maybe this is the opportunity to kind of try something. Because it, the aim of the fund is like, it's a, it's a tester pot. It's, you know, it's does this work kind of thing. Um, so I kind of had a chat with, with Mal and um, for us kind of, you know, games, games can be quite, physical things whether you are you know on the wheel or whatever and and kind of using your arms and your legs to to control things or whether you're thinking about like a physical character within a game and how that character moves so there were um there are kind of um continuous threads i think between what the two of us do um and we were just interested in exploring that a little bit further so we're going to try and and bring together both of our practices kind of using Mal's paper prototyping um, idea, which he kind of delivers a lot with uh, various different groups around Dundee and Tayside, um, and then bring in dance and spoken word to think about, you know, setting the scene for a game, to think about how the characters move, what's their body language, how do they talk, and all that kind of thing. So you can really bring a game to life. Um, so we're going to be delivering, hopefully, a, a couple of one-off workshops for the young people again at, at, at Dundee Women's Aid, um, which Dundee Women's Aid are really, really pleased about. And, and also the young people are as well, because there's actually quite a few of the group that we have worked with, me, myself and Louise on Creative Toolbox, actually want to be game designers when they grow up. So it's a really, really nice project um, to do. And I think, I think part of what we're doing as well is is showing that that career path is possible. Because I think a lot of young people, especially those in more disadvantaged situations, um, are made to feel like their dreams are never going to come true. So hopefully by bringing them this project and, and, and allowing them to you know, meet and chat with Mal and myself, they'll then be able to see that anything is possible in their future. <laughs> I, I want to jump back a little bit mm -hmm. um, to sort of talk about hip hop. Um, you, have, you said that you sort of hip hop dance is the, the style, is your just sort of main style. Um, I'm not sure I know exactly what that means and where the line between street dance and hip hop dance and break dance actually is. So, what, where, what is hip hop? Okay, brace yourself. This is a long story. Um, so hip hop is is kind of an umbrella term as far as dance is concerned. Um, there are so many different styles that have originated from kind of the root of breaking and house back in the South Bronx in New York in the 1970s. Um, so originally you had styles like um, breaking. People call it breakdance, not actually the correct term, it's breaking or b-boying. Um, and um, that that kind of came about, um, the DJs would extend the break sections of tracks because they realised that that's when people were dancing the most. So when you've got the, the, the drum break in the middle. So that's where the term breaking comes from, is that you would dance to the drum break. Um, and, um, you know, quite a lot of those moves have sort of floor based um there were other styles like up rocking and things like that that were more upright so you wouldn't necessarily get down on onto the floor um but as with a lot of kind of what's happening with with hip-hop because you know there are there are various different art forms within the hip-hop culture you've got you know you've got your um your rap um you've got the the djing culture you've also got graffiti as the sort of visual art side of things um and for me what what makes hip hop hip hop is the evolution from one form to the next or from one style to the next. Um, so what originally was breaking and house and up rocking has eventually morphed. And I kind of talk it 
talk about it like a tree. So you've got the roots, which is where it all began. And from those roots, there are some foundations. There are certain kinds of movements that become the foundations and they go up into the trunk of the tree. And then you've got all of these branches as each of those movements, kind of different groups of people would make them their own, which then eventually turned into other dance forms that now fit under the the umbrella term of hip hop. So whacking, voguing, crumping, popping, locking, all of these things are hip hop, but they've kind of taken the foundations in a slightly different direction to some of the others. Um, And when we talk about street dance, street dance is a weird term. It's often used wrongly. It's often thought that it was because people used to dance in the street and that's why it's used, Um, which gets a little bit complicated when you're moving into, as I do, hip-hop dance theatre and people are like, oh, it's surprising to see this dance form in a theatre. It usually happens on the street and it's like, oh, no, that's that's not the message you want to be sending. Um, But when, when people who aren't necessarily in the know talk about street dance, what they're actually talking about is commercial hip-hop. Um, so, like, you know, if it, just to take an example, people will know, like, Diversity, who are on Britain's Got Talent and Flawless, that's commercial hip-hop. Um, and it's it's called commercial hip-hop for the reason that it was on the commercial rap videos. It was, you know, it, it is a more financially viable <laughs> um, form um, uh, of, of, of the art form. It has sold more kind of thing. Um and that's my original sort of training is in is in the commercial hip hop. But as I say, what I am interested in is in the evolution. So although I was initially trained in um, commercial hip hop, working with the youth club back home in Manchester, um, and then when I was at uni, I kind of trained under one of Kanye West's former dancers and things like that. And I've worked with Kano and Wiley. Um, yeah, that's commercial hip hop. But at the same time, I've also had training in contemporary dance. Um, I've also done a bit of samba reggae. And hip hop has always done this thing where it has taken things from elsewhere, kind of like the hip hop DJ who takes something from one track and something from another track and rams it together to make a remix, which is an entirely new work. The whole of hip hop does that. So the work that I create now, the choreographic work that I create, to the untrained eye doesn't necessarily look like hip hop anymore because it has evolved and it's that evolution that I'm really interested in and I think all art evolves for me otherwise it would stop (laughs) that's my argument anyway (laughs) you said that there's so many different facets to this Mm -hmm. um, to hip hop and so how many of those do you embrace outside the dance side of it? Like, I mean, do, do you listen to hip hop music? Do you, have you ever tried your hand at like graffiti or street art type stuff or? I, I try, and this is, this is basically over the past 12 months is that I've tried to bring in all elements of hip hop to, to what I do. Um, the way that kind of the hip hop community describe hip hop is that hip hop has five pillars. Um, four of which are the art forms that I mentioned. So you've got the dance, you've got um, the rapping, emceeing, spoken word, whatever you want to call it. You've got the DJing and then you've got the graffiti. The contested fifth pillar is knowledge um, and is about the knowledge of the history of the whole subculture, but also just knowledge on on a global scale. You know, hip hop wants to be socially conscious, wants to be a social commentary so there needs to be a a certain amount of intelligence in the way you go about things um i would argue there's a sixth pillar which is community which is about bringing people together um and that comes from the community that that hip-hop originally came from um uh back in the bronx but is also for me there's a lot of artists now um who engage in what we call hip-hop education which is about bringing communities together through learning about hip-hop or through using hip-hop techniques to learn about something else. Um, And I certainly think at The Artifact, we use all six of those pillars, no matter what we're doing. So because we're working with marginalised groups, we've got that community aspect. We're bringing people together. We've, of course, as a dance company, got the dance element. When it comes to uh, things like the DJing idea, 
this idea of the remix, I think, is a really... It's a, a remix, when you break it down, is a really simple thing that can be translated in a variety of different ways. So the idea of a remix is just about taking things from elsewhere and putting them together and, and mixing them up. Um, so we have an education program at The Artifact, which is called The Remix, which um, allows people to watch one of our performances and remix it. So they create their own remix by going, take that bit out, move that around here, move that over there. I'm going to put my own bit in here kind of thing. So they can, they can kind of create their own remix, but it also, again, it's allowing them to express their opinion on whatever issue has been explored through the choreography. We also tend to create work to words, not music. So um, tend not to have, you know, a, your sort of quintessential soundtrack in our performances. It's either live spoken word, that is, so the dancers will speak and move at the same time, um, or um, we'll have kind of recorded audio. Um, so that brings in sort of the spoken word element of it, but also again, the remix, because we get people to move the words around to create new versions of the pieces. Um, and then the sort of visual element of it, the graffiti element is, a relatively new arena for us. We are exploring new ways of bringing that in. So we did a show at Duncan of Jordan Stone College of Art and Design in August called The Past is a Foreign Country, which was a double bill of two dance performances. But we had a sort of exhibition area that went with it that was about kind of a visual representation of what we were trying to say through those performances. Um, so that's a new experiment. I'm not necessarily sure where it's falling yet, but it's certainly something we're interested in exploring because we feel as a, as a hip hop company, we should be embodying every element um, in there. So it's, it's certainly something we try to do. Mm -hmm. And I think we are successful to a certain extent, but you can always do better. <laughs> So, I mean, you've also off the back of this, you've decided to, to write two ebooks. Um, why? I suppose two questions. Why decide to, to write something? Mm -hmm. And why decide to put it out as an ebook? Okay. Well, kind of, I, th I think I've always written stuff because, and I think that is because of my first degree in English literature. I've always been quite, I've, I've always loved books, I've always loved reading, and I've always loved writing. And it is very much a part of my process to keep journals of each project. And that's kind of me trying to understand where I'm at with a project, to kind of digest what's happened so far and help to push it forward and, and make it better. So I've always written about what I've been doing anyway. Um, but over the past year, I started to do much more in-depth research into hip hop. Um, and got incredibly geekily into it. Um, and with that kind of came this idea of, well, why don't I try and kind of um, create a book about it? And these, these two books are actually, they're written in the style of like a, a, a gallery catalogue. So it was, again, another attempt to kind of try and bring the visual element in. Um, so you've kind of, you've got your, your, your catalogue essay to begin with, then you've got the catalogue that looks at different works that is a, a more visual representation of the things that we do. Um, and then there's usually a, an, an interview with another hip hop artist at the end. Um, so it was also a, a kind of an attempt towards, towards that. In terms of why an ebook, Honestly, that's a financial decision <laughs> um, because the, the books have got a lot of images in them because, of, you know, the style that they're written in, um, they can be quite um, expensive to print. So at the moment we are marketing them as ebooks, and the hope is that because there's two books out now, the remix and the moves, but it's part of a, a series of six. Um, so once all six are out there as ebooks, there will be a re-edited version of all of them with some extra material in one printed volume because then it becomes financially viable once it's a bigger book mm -hmm. um so yeah um but i think as well you know we are we are moving to a, a digital world and a lot of people are 
are, you know, more interested in having something on their iPad or on their or on their Kindle um, these days. So it it kind of makes it accessible for kind of people to just read on the go as well. Yeah. I, I still think it's nice to have a big chunky book that you can feel in front I, of you. I agree. I love a big chunky book, but yeah, yeah. Um, but they are. Yeah. I mean, they are more expensive. Yeah, you know, like, exactly. Because of the cost to produce them. Um, but you know, like I say, maybe we will get to get to that point in the future. That's the plan. I want to talk a little bit about um, performance. Mm-hmm. I suppose. How do you? How do you describe the performance work that you do? So um, we talk about it as kind of choreographic work and we say that it's choreographic work that tells stories that have been mistold or left untold throughout history. Okay. Um, so it goes back to you know what we do with our workshops and about the, the marginalised voices idea. Mm. Um, and uh, it's, it's sort of based in the idea that, you know, we're not, as this could get a little bit political, I warn you, um, we, we are living in a world where we're not necessarily given all of the information. Um, mm-hmm. And hip hop itself is a story that's often told incorrectly. You know, a lot of people think of hip hop, they think of gang violence. They think of a certain set of rappers like 50 Cent, for example. Um, and, you know, I I've taught, beginners lessons in hip-hop before to little kids and ask them where they think hip-hop came from and the first thing they mention is 50 cent and how cool he is because he's been shot nine times and that's not that's not the message we want to be we want to be sending and actually the the kind of violent side of hip-hop is a is a minority of people when you think about the 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 mass of people that are involved in hip-hop um it's a minority of people that have become very famous and made a lot of money, which is why that's what the world... And they've, they've glamorised those aspects of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but there's there's a lot more of the hip-hop community who are, you know, who see hip-hop as a means of fighting back against the system, um, as a, a way of being politically aware, a way of fighting for the human rights of a variety of different people across the globe. Um, and that's that's where hip-hop came from. You know, hip-hop was a response to the oppression of black youths in the Bronx. Um, and it wasn't originally a violent response. Um, and as I say, as, as a whole, as a mass subculture, it's not a violent response. It's just, the, you know, these few individuals that have kind of let the world think it is that way. I suppose, I mean, that's never been more relevant without, again, without trying to be too political and avoiding those, the T and the B word. Um, <laughs> I think the way that we tell stories is changing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you should believe is changing a lot. Um, and I think now there's a, a sort of an uprising in, in comedians who are creating factual programmes and making political statements that are much more relevant and much more informing than the news. Um, so you look at John Oliver um, mm-hmm. or you look at um, Charlie Brooker and Newswipe or even to some extent, probably a lesser extent, Russell Howard's uh, Hour or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. um, where they're doing, they're, they've got a team of researchers, they're going, they're doing that and they're making good political statements or statements about the, the wrong that's happening. Mm-hmm. But they're making it funny and they're making it accessible. And the, the argument with them was that, that if you were to do that in a lecture format, mm-hmm. no one would care, no one would come, no one would get involved in that. And I think that's why we need to be more creative in the way that we're telling the stories, but tell them with the facts that back everything up. Absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned John Oliver because um, his program is on the soundtrack of one of our current shows um, at, for that reason, you know. So um, the our most recent sort of double bill, The Passes of Foreign Country, that I mentioned earlier, it's got two, kind of two pieces in it. One's called Somewhere North of Here, which is essentially about Brexit. It is a, it's a response to that. But what it is really talking about is the fact that so many lies and propaganda were sold to the public um, and people made their decision base, based on the lies that they were told. Um, and it's, it's 
I mean, I mean, from the piece, it's very clear which way I voted, but that's not necessarily the point of it. The, the, the point is the government should not be telling the wrong stories to people and then asking them to make a decision on the basis of that. So it, it uses um, kind of audio from programmes just like John Oliver's to remind people of the absolutely ridiculous things that were said during that campaign and the things that were said in the 24 hours afterwards, you know, like Nigel Farage's, oh yeah, by the way, the, that bus, that was a mistake, that's, that's a complete lie, you know, to kind of go, you know, uh, you know it's, it's more about getting people to question what is going on in the world. I'm not, certainly not, we're not trying to kind of brainwash people and say you should have voted this way or you should have voted that way. It's, it's, it's more about, you know, just because someone is an, is an authority doesn't necessarily mean they're telling you the, you the truth. Yeah. Um, and we kind of need to consider that a little bit more. And then the, the other piece is called Lies My Parents Told Me and kind of looks at it from a very different perspective. Um, uh, so that is, is spoken word, it's a solo, it's spoken word and dance performed live by me. Um, and it kind of comes from this idea that um, I was certainly trying to understand the way certain members of my family voted during the EU referendum um, and you know you never want to think that you know there are there are members of your family who believe in certain horrible things or, or things like that you know so I tried to understand where people were coming from and was thinking about how generation gaps are now so huge that we don't understand each other anymore you know um, the world that our parents grew up in is very different to the world that we now live in which could possibly mean it's a very scary place for them um and you know not necessarily being able to keep up or understand how fast the world has changed can you know result in knee-jerk reactions to to kind of certain things or can result result in certain beliefs that aren't necessarily positive um so I kind of then looked back and thought about, you know, all of the advice that parents give their children and kind of went, is it, is it relevant anymore? Is it even true anymore? Are these, are they actually telling us lies without realising that they're lies, that they're no longer true? Um, and even something as simple as, you know, like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, it's a, it's a lie. It's not real, you know, Santa Claus doesn't exist. Sorry for anybody who believes in Santa listening. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so it was like, okay, so how, how dangerous is that? And, and, and is this generation gap, is the, the, this advice that's not quite sticking anymore, is that the reason that we're in this position now? Is that the reason that, you know, different generations voted so widely different? You know, so it's it's a question. It, I don't know whether I've answered it in in the piece. I don't think I necessarily want to answer it for people. I want them to kind of take their own kind of view from it. Um, but I mean that the script for that very much kind of goes back to the the hip hop idea of the remix. In that all of kind of I collected about ten thousand words through interviews with people and through my own writing for it but then I handed it to five different artists for them to remix and take bits out and move it around and add their own bits in so I'm hoping that it it represents the views of a kind of cross section of my generation and they're kind of you know 25 to 30 year olds um and what they think about this and again, that allows other people through the work of the artifact to offer their own opinions on these these political things and hopefully get their voices heard and get them to engage in things um, which, like you say, they wouldn't necessarily engage with if it was just in a lecture format. Mm. So, yeah. So, I mean, thinking about dance a bit more broadly and performative dance, um, because I, I mean, it's something I, I talked to Joanne about um, a few weeks ago, um, and sort of, I want to kind of ask you the same thing: is there is obviously a, a sort of cynicism or scepticism or a sort of preconceived notion of what dance is, and, and probably performative dance to get someone to mm -hmm. go along and see a piece of of dance. A lot of people are going to go, mm, I don't know, it's a bit arty farty. That's really not for me. Yep. Um, yep. How do you encourage someone? 
to understand that it's more than that and that there will be something for them in the performance? It depends who they are. I mean, I, I've, I've done a lot of teaching in schools with young lads and the minute I've mentioned the word dance, they've gone, I don't do ballet. <laughs> and uh, because that's what they think dance is. And I've gone, neither do I. I can't point my toe to save my life. I have no interest in doing so. But you say the word dance and there is a, you know, image of people in tutus that kind of comes into people's heads. Um, so, you know, in terms of getting people to participate in dance, sometimes it's a little bit about tricking them. So I've got young lads before where I've actually taught them some parkour techniques. And before they know it, they're doing contemporary dance lifts. And then they go, hang on, you just got us to dance. You're like, yes, I did. You know, but by that point, they're, they're enjoying it without thinking, oh, I'm being a dancer or whatever. That it's, it's okay, you know, that you've got over that boundary. Um, but I think as well with, with getting people to kind of watch dance it's about your language and I think we need to be better at using you know more accessible language in the dance industry I I'll be honest we're not very good at it at all there's a lot of blurbs that you see on dance shows that you know say words like dynamic and you know and, and all this kind of thing that to someone who isn't you know a regular dance goer those words mean nothing you know, and it just makes it sound very intellectualized um, and will quite obviously make somebody go, oh, I'm not going to get it, so I'm not going to bother. When I actually think it's more interesting to go, kind of go, okay, yeah, it's a dance piece, but what's it about? Can we actually just talk about what this is about now, you know? Um, and then appealing to different people through their interests. So if someone is politically minded, for example and is interested about debates on Brexit, that's how we will target someone coming to see someone else of here. Um, it's not necessarily, are you, a, are you a dance audience? Not at all. It's, are you interested in this? Then come see this, and through that, you can be part of the conversation. Um, I think as well, it's also, you know, sometimes saying things like hip-hop and street dance will make people a little bit more interested in going to something because they think it's more accessible they 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 think that hip-hop is something that you know you're more likely to get and understand and and because it looks impressive because people are doing flips and things like that um but at the same time we need to be very careful about that as the hip-hop community and in saying that you know actually hip-hop can be complex can um deal with these big issues as well so it's it's a balance, but we as the dance industry need to work together to find that balance. And I don't necessarily think we are at the moment. Um, yeah, we need, to, we need to talk about language more. Okay, so um, I kind of want to sort of round up by talking a little bit about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, how much time do you spend in a week actually dancing? It depends. I think... That's one of the things I love about what I do is that every week is completely different. Um, and, you know, there are, you know, for, so for example, Creative Toolbox at the minute is a is a regular weekly project. So I know um, when each week I'm going to be teaching um, with Louise. Um, and that, you know, that runs for a few more weeks now. So that's, that's in my diary. Um, there is, because I run the company as well, there is a certain amount of admin that goes into what I'm doing. So I do, I do spend time in front of the computer, um, sending emails. Um, there's a lot of a freelance artist life now, or at, you know, to be honest, anybody who works within an arts company whose time is spent writing funding applications and getting them sent off and making sure that we can kind of continue to do what we want to do. Um, and then there'll be times where it's workshop planning, planning tasks, trying them out on yourself to see if, you know, new tasks work or not, um, uh, creating choreography to teach within, um, different sessions. Um, but again, that will depend on what's coming up. So I, I know I'm teaching some hip hop sessions for staff and students at the University of Dundee in November. So this morning I was running through choreography for that kind of thing 
Um, and then when it comes to kind of creating shows, we tend to have periods where we just focus on that. Um, so July this year, there was a huge amount of, of being in the studio most of the day, most days to create Lies My Parents Told Me at that point. Um, and for me, that's kind of the best way to create work because you are, you know, focusing intensely on that for a certain amount of time and you kind of have to force yourself to forget about everything else for a minute and just work on that. And that can be really freeing um, and will allow you to kind of create something substantial in a certain amount of time. So, um, but we also have kind of weeks that are like, um, and I know, I think Joanne touched upon this, like what we call R&D, research and development, where you may be um, in residence um, with a particular dance studio or venue and you'll be um, creating something or testing an idea and you may have something to share at the end, but it's not necessarily a full production. It may just be little kind of bits. Um, but again, you know, when it comes to that, you're spending the entire week creating and moving and working on that, but it's not necessarily intense rehearsals if you're, you know, as if you were just coming up to a show. So it's kind of, it's, it's kind of different. I know I, I spent most of my summer just dancing and now I'm doing a lot more teaching and admin because now it's like, well, okay, we'll get, you know, we, we, we need to get the money for the, the next thing that we want to do and then hopefully it will switch again. Um, so it kind of comes in waves, really. And where, like, where do you get your inspiration from? I... This, this sounds really weird. I've actually found that I make the best work when I'm angry. Right. So I, um, I, so for example, with the passes of foreign country and the, you know, the, the piece about, about Brexit, it was, it was an anger. It was, I, I had an emotional response to something that was happening in the world and I had to do something about it. That was basically what I felt with that one. Um, with other things, with like, because you still you still find inspiration in delivering workshops and things like that. It's not a mechanical thing for me. I bounce a lot off the participants, um, and there are you know, especially working with young people, there are some really beautiful moments that you will unexpectedly see something that a young person has created, and it one it can bring tears to your eyes. But two, it's also kind of a, a moment of going, okay, wow, your brain obviously works in a very different way to mine. You've just taught me something. Even though I am 20 years your senior. And now, if it's okay with you, I can use that in the future to make what I do better. Um, so I do find a lot of inspiration in young people um, and in, you know, the participants that we work with, again, those marginalised voices, because when you finally give somebody the opportunity to speak their mind when they've not necessarily been permitted to do so before, what comes out is incredible. And so, I mean, I suppose beyond that, can you recommend some things that you've listened to, read, watched recently that have sort of either made you stop and think or you've just really enjoyed well, I've just finished reading. If anybody's really interested in kind of learning um, a lot more about the history of hip hop and where kind of all of that came from, um, one of the best books to read is by Jeff Chang, and it's um, it's called Can't Stop, Won't Stop: The History of the Hip Hop Generation. Uh, it's quite a big book, but it's really kind of accessible. You don't necessarily need to know anything about hip hop to to kind of read it, but it gives a really comprehensive history and explains how hip-hop relates to civil rights movements, um, relates to feminism and discussions around all these, these kind of big issues that I think hip-hop artists are now really trying to address. Um, so that's a really good one. Um, there's also uh, there's a video going around Facebook at the minute, which is just a really short video um, by Akala, um, and... People may know him as a rapper, but he also runs the Hip Hop Shakespeare Company. Um, and he basically is, is using, using Shakespeare, um, which 
if you read Shakespeare in the way a Carla reads it, because it's iambic pentameter kind of thing, um, it, it sounds like rap. It actually sounds like rap. Um, and kind of turns Shakespeare on its head, gets people to think about Shakespeare in different ways, but is working with young people who the education system has written off, basically. Um, and he's kind of proving the holes that are in the education system, mainly in the English education system, because he's kind of working down in England. Um, but um, by saying, you know, if I can get these young people that have been expelled from school to engage with Shakespeare, clearly the young people aren't the problem. <laughs> um, and he, there is, there is a, a video of him that he's done really recently just speaking to camera about his thoughts on this that is a really, really interesting look at... Um, how hip-hop education can help and can be translated across a variety of kind of different fields. So that's another good one. Um, and oh, what else? I would also say listen to, if you haven't already, it's an old song, but Dead Prez's um, It's Bigger Than Hip-Hop. Actually look at the lyrics because that says a lot about what you know the, the all these misconceptions about hip-hop they said it straight and that came out in 2001 but it's a really it's a really good track of hip-hop speaking for itself to say hang on guys this is not what we're about there yeah. we go <laughs> um so just before you go um one last question is what does the future hold for you oh sky's the limit I hope. Um, so what we're doing right now, um, we're putting together a few funding bids, um, hoping to expand our work with Dundee Women's Aid to actually kind of start working with Angus Women's Aid and Perth Women's Aid as well. So working with both the women and the young people there, um, delivering our workshops in dance and spoken word on a wider level, again, as art therapy. Um, and um, I know, so for example, Dundee Women's Aid have recently got funding for a clinical psychologist to come on their staff. Um, and our dance and, spoke, uh, dance and spoken word workshops are um, kind of on a menu of art therapy stuff that, that um, survivors can be referred to. So we're hopefully going to be working in, in much more in-depth um, with survivors of, of domestic abuse. Um, we're also, uh, we just joined Dundee Social Enterprise Network as an aspiring social enterprise. So we're looking into doing a feasibility grant with various different groups in Dundee, working with stroke patients and um, uh, adults um, with additional support needs. Um, and there's something else that's really exciting, but I can't talk about it. But I'm going down <laughs> to London to do something very, very cool with our dance and spoken word workshops. Um, but as well, um, actually, on the 18th of November, I'll be at the University of East London um, on a uh, artist panel talking about the evolution of hip hop at a conference down there. Um, so lots of kind of different stuff happening. And we're also hoping to tour the Passes of Foreign Country in 2018 and 2019. So if you missed it in August, hopefully there will be other opportunities for you to see that. Great. Um, and if anyone wants to reach out to you, find you online. So we are, our website is www.theartifact.org.uk and it's the artifact spelt with an I, the American way, just because I like to be a bit different. Um, we're on Twitter at Artifact Tweets um, and we're also on Facebook. If you just search for the artifact, you should be able to, to kind of find us. Um, and then Instagram, we are the Artifact Scotland um, as well. You can find us on, on YouTube as well through the website. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to Gemma for coming on and doing the podcast. Um, that was this week's episode. Um, hope you enjoyed it. If you did, um, give us a follow. Um, let me know what you thought on Twitter. Um, it's at CCC Dundee on there and on Instagram. Or you can catch us on the Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. Um, there's also still a bunch of merchandise available um, on CCC Dundee forward slash store. Um, and if you want a print or a badge or a mini book, um, there's loads up there. And 
it all goes to keeping the podcast going, keeping it running and covering a little bit of the costs so I can continue to sort of find brilliant people in Dundee and capture their amazing journeys. Um, before I go, I'd just like to say thanks again to our sponsor this week, and that's the DCA Print Studio. Um, Anna talked about at the start of the episode about those registration fees, and to be honest, for the, the facility that's down there, it's less than a pound a week um, for an entire year. Um, and obviously, there's a, a further discounted rate if you do get that induction through one of their courses. Um, yeah, so definitely go and check it out. Um, just poke your head around, have a wee nosy. Um, go and say hello uh, and I'm sure before you know it you'll be uh, in there printing something but yeah that's it for this week Um, until next week goodbye